0: Comedia sexy Ali Italiana, Ryan. <laughs> your favorite shit? Your favorite shit? Yes, <laughs> yes. Just getting t- titillated thinking about it. Oh my God. Uh, Ryan, it's your topic tonight. I know, I know. Prove it. Bless you, bless
1: you. You know what I've never seen before? And I just started watching. Uh, I've never seen any of the Jason Bourne movies. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and
0: create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. i the truth. This guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they
2: were. And we let him on the It's hot.
0: It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk
1: out there very, very, very... Open fire. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis and I am joined with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic, a theme for the week, and the other hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic or challenge the topic, and we hash it out right here in the Gauntlet Studios. I am up this week, and for my topic, you know, I was thinking, we're pretty close to Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is is here. By the time you listen to this, it might have already been here, but... Valentine's Day is kind of an all-year-round thing for lover boys like us. So I had the boys bring, in Marsh's words, bloody Valentine's cards to the gauntlet this week. I asked you both to bring me a giallo film. You know, Giallo for the for the unanointed is a sort of subgenre of of horror, particularly or most popularly or most well known in Italy. They are these sort of proto-slasher films, but uh, many, if not most, if not all, have a uh, psychosexual erotic bent to them as well. So I figured it would be a, a fitting way to, to explore uh, Valentine's Day, this, this very romantic day with with journeys into cinematic eroticism and, and violence from those great, great lovers themselves, the Italians. And boy, do we got a pair? this week. Uh I, I should say too, before you both introduce your films, you know, something I find uh interesting about this this week's films, uh we you know we often for those who are fans of the gauntlet, you know the drill by now, we we often uh marvel ourselves, I think, with our ability to to make connections sometimes in our double features <laughs> between films, which which seemingly on the surface uh, seem so, so different from one another, such, such stark contrasts. And I feel without bearing the lead too much tonight or stealing your thunder, a lot of our challenge tonight is going to be to differentiate (laughs) the films that you both selected because as Ryan pointed out, even before we recorded, uh, one almost feels as if it was a remake of the other. And we can talk a lot about, about that. And, and of course, the particulars of Italian cinema, I think, that, that, that lend uh, themselves to, to, to something like, like that. But that's our task today, really, is to, is to contrast two very similar forays into the world of Giallo. So, without further ado, let's get the films out. Let's bring them to the table.
2: Uh, Ryan, why don't we start with you? What did you bring to the gauntlet listeners this week? The challenge is quite difficult because I, as I'm here about to do my introduction, I am religiously s- sort of studying my notes just to make sure that apart from the fact that there are so many characters in these films and in this particular apartment that my film opens in, uh, I just want to make sure that I don't introduce details of the film marsh selected <laughs> uh, accidentally these films have truly blended in my mind <laughs> so originally you know the film that marsh actually ended up picking was one i was considering for the pod and he, he beat me to the punch but i was i was very happy with the one i ended up landing on and that's from one of the you know the great yucky italian filmmakers lucio fulci and i selected the film lizard in a woman's skin from 1971 It's set in London and it's following a woman named Carol as she's living in this somewhat kind of like classical, quite large, beautiful apartment with her extended family who all sort of are people. It's a very multinational family when you go through the cast list of this film. Uh, We have Carol herself, who is played by Florinda Bolkin, who is a Brazilian actress and model. Her father is a wealthy lawyer and politician named Edmund, here played by an actual British man. Her husband, Frank also lives in this apartment. Uh, he is a lawyer. He is played by Jean Sorel, a French actor. And they also happen to live with Frank's daughter, Joan, who is from a previous marriage. And this is played by, uh, I don't know, Il- Il- I didn't plan on pronouncing her name. It's played by <laughs> uh, Eli Galliani, a, uh, Ooh, nice. an Italian actress. So we've got all these people out here under the sun, all in this apartment. But there's, there's trouble afoot next door. There is a, a, a naughty neighbor named Julia who is causing a ruckus all night long. And it is driving Carol and some other members of the home quite mad. Uh, Having to listen to these wild, LSD-infused sex orgies that are just, like, thumping all night long to the the, the London base of, you know, the the early 70s. But while all these things are happening next door, Carol, who herself is, you know, quote-unquote sexually frustrated, as may be sort of listed in the descriptions of this film, starts having these fantasies of imagining herself in very erotic situations with her neighbor. And at the same time, as she's sort of living her life in her cozy little apartment, she can't help but have visions of what's happening next door invade her mind. And we get this through these crazy split-screen sequences, very stylish. But one night when she's having one of these nightmares, one of these psychedelic, crazy nightmares about what's going on next door, what she's doing with her neighbor... In this nightmare, she murders her neighbor. And then when she wakes up the next day, she eventually gets the news that her neighbor is dead and has been murdered in very similar circumstances to what happened in her dream. And then what follows is a series of "Quote unquote, maybe they're hallucinations, maybe they're things that are she's predicting that are actually happening. But it's an investigation into sort of the fears and desires of Carol. And then there's this is when uh, an inspector arrives, played by Stanley Baker, Inspector Colvin, who goes on the hunt. You know, he's Scotland Yard, and he's there to sort of tie up all these loose ends and figure out what the deal is. It's a it's an, a nasty little movie. It's very stylish. It's uh, very expressive. There's tons of flourishes. The cameras." always moving around it's zooming in and out we have split screen we have crazy black box studio sets and uh, we also have a rather fine score by Ennio Morricone as well to sort of wrap all all of these factors up uh, in a nice little bow for the film I had a really good time the film yeah again it's it's going to be fun trying to separate the two of these films because they've sort of molded in my brain as a singular object so I'll, I'll stop now and let Marsh sort of talk about uh (laughs) the other one and hopefully we'll be able to make some
0: (laughs) distinctions here (laughs) all right so marsh what is the other one well to be honest i don't have a, a ton of experience with giallo films outside of some canonical classics by dario argento and mario bava So I was looking around and seeing, you know, which ones people really dug, and and this uh, came up uh, quite often as I was looking around. And that's All the Colors of the Dark from 1972, directed by Sergio Martino who himself was a prolific genre filmmaker of both giallos and comedies uh, throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it is uh, a a little less chaotic than uh, Ryan's film, but it is uh, no less uh, salacious in its uh, content. And it is also, like Lizard in a Woman's Skin, set in London. So in this film... We follow Jane Harrison, played by Edwige Finesh, who is a sort of housewife recovering from a car accident and miscarriage at the beginning of the film. And the film actually opens with a totally insane dream sequence, a very sort of kaleidoscopic and Freudian dream sequence that Jane is having. And this introduces us to her traumatic life and childhood and recent past and she is disturbed by these shocking and gruesome dreams throughout the film and she's caught between her common-law husband Richard played by George Hilton who is uh, a pharmaceutical salesman uh, and her sister Barbara and there's also a psychoanalyst who is of course played by the same actor in both of our films playing <laughs> a psychoanalyst uh, so that was another extremely funny kind of like moment of trying to distinguish these films when literally they have the same doctor. Saying
2: almost the exact same
1: thing in both
2: films. (laughs) In the exact same way, he's got the same outfits on. It's as if he walked from one set onto the next. I watched both of these films rather late at night and I felt nuts when he appeared again in the next film.
0: Anyway, as these dreams begin to invade Jane's reality, she is stalked by a strange and mysterious man with piercing blue eyes. And this uh, leads to satanic cults and murders and uh, all kinds of fun stuff. So I'll just leave it at that for now. That's uh, All the Colors of the Dark. I'm uh, I think as I've I've told you both, uh, a huge,
1: huge Giallo head. Giallo was uh, one of my first loves as a as a as a new college film student, you know, when I first <laughs> got into it. And obviously mm-hmm. I I started the way I think a lot of um, people who discover Giallo, I started with Argento and then from there started to get into a lot of the the seedier sides of giallo because there's there's many it's a very very deep twisted grimy rabbit hole that you can you can crawl down but was very pleased because i had not seen either of these films and though i'm very familiar with the work of of both the directors, Fulci and Martino. Uh, these were two that had been on my list. They were always in there in the back of my mind somewhere, you know, when I would occasionally go into a moment of, I should get back into watching Jallo films. And so I was, of course, very pleased that you, you both. Uh, selected them. (laughs) Of course, the, the, again, like sort of shocking realization that they are, (laughs) are so uncannily similar (laughs) was, uh, was a, was an uh, unexpected treat uh, for me in this. But I think it also just speaks to the Italian film industry and in particular, like how the Italians approached a lot of their genre filmmaking. You know, I think you see a a very similar thing with with their spaghetti westerns. You know, the Italians uh, particularly would, you know, would hit on something and then, you know, copy it and then copy the copy and then copy the copy of the copy and and replicate them over and over. Uh, In some cases, you know, having the same actors, in some cases having different actors, but with the same character name and then... You know, you discover that, well, even though there's, there's you know, 18 Django films, there's really only, you know, two actual Django films. But, well, who are these other 16 Djangos? You know, it doesn't right. really matter, you know. But the Italians, I think, uh, had a particular zest and zeal for finding a formula and then pulling that lever as many times as they could. So... It, it was very stark to to think about that when when watching these two films. and And that being said, I think, calling one of these, you know, a sort of copy of another or, you know, being very clearly inspired by the other or just being like, "Hey, it worked there, let's do it again." Uh takes away from them in a way that I think is is unfair because both of these films, in spite of their similarities, are are I think incredibly interesting and well-made films and excellent examples of of what makes giallo hit different than so many other Types of horror or,
2: or just, you know, hit in its own way. I know. Well, honestly, with all the split screen stuff that was in Lizard and a Woman's Skin, it even gave me the idea that I think it would be really cool to project both of these films side by <laughs> side because they're in such familiar spaces and they also then like tread into studio spaces and with a similar approach and yet distinctly different. And just as visual art pieces, I think these films would be really nice to look at next to each other in in sort of recognizing
1: that you know this this italian disposition for sort of yeah replicating things or, or working within the formula and the fact that things can be so similar to one another i think it's important to recognize that in both spaghetti westerns and in giallo i think one of the one of the things that is i think key to 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 accessing them is sort of recognizing a certain two-dimensionality of character in the films, you know, that Mm -hmm. in, I think a lot of them, the people that we're encountering and we're experiencing are better treated as like pure archetypes, you know, a man, a woman. And there are some and some filmmakers who, who I think would go to greater depths in trying to make their characters a little bit more lived in. I think part of what, these two films do so well is sort of leaning into that. And I think that's that's key to like this doctor character that you mentioned. It's sort of like he just represents every psychoanalyst in a movie, you know, it's yes. like, and that's such an Italian thing, right? It's like having the type, you know, and they they loved typecasting actors. So, you know, I discovered even in looking into that actor that, you know, there's other films where he played either, a lot of other films where he either played a professor or a doctor, you know, and probably like the professor, of course, was a PhD. So technically he's also a doctor, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I think it's like, it, it's the thing, you know, that really... For me, again, as, like, a young, like, film student that, like, really connected to Jallo, I think it's so important to to understand that these films are about surfaces. They're about images. Mm-hmm. To me, Jallo is one of the great cinemas of perception and playing with perception and sort of um, playing with perception and images in a way that almost resist depth. You know, it's a very glossy, it's a very jarringly flashy type of cinema. And both these films, as you mentioned in your descriptions, open with incredible dream sequences that you've alluded to. So I I think I really appreciated uh, how both films sort of waste no time in laying out their own
2: sort of rules, you know, for like how this thing is going to work. Yeah. I mean, Lizard in a Woman's Skin comes in hot with a full on panic attack on a train as she's stumbling through and seeing all of this debauchery and again ending up in a black box studio space that looked exactly like the black box. I mean, not there's a way to really tell a black box studio space apart from another, but you you almost wonder if like they finished up shooting in all the colors of the dark and then like that crew walked out and then this one just moved right in, um, used some of the same stuff. But yeah, hyper stylized, got like this giant velvet mattress as they're, you know, frolicking around on top, one of them wearing like an insanely garish fur coat. And yeah, it is that extreme quality that I i i've struggled sort of on my own like really getting into giallo over the years i love italian horror but sometimes i find myself finding giallo films maybe just like a little bit boring at times and i think it's because there is like it's sort of cracking through that element of the copy right and then
0: it's also because you have a uh a phobia of investigation films.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's, I mean, that's partially it, yes. (laughs) There's there's no doubt about that.
0: Or maybe, yeah, maybe not a phobia, but a a negative disposition towards... uh, certain kinds of crime films <laughs> exactly but at the
2: same time the I mean I think it's because I'm like less of a I mean as, as it's happened many times on the gauntlet I forget details about the plot <laughs> I'm talking about films that yeah, I watch you're you know, not a plot the, guy that's the fine night before. I'm not a plot guy however you know in, in this film while there is uh, there's, there's lots of plot in both of these films and there's lots of characters but it's, it's all the pleasures are found in all of these excessive images and the way that space is treated um, and how space becomes warped and bent and twisted around and compressed in this way that does reflect the way everybody's feeling and these panic attacks and these fears and these desires. And it and it's very beautiful and it is uniquely Italian in that way.
0: Yeah, everything is so Baroque.
1: Yes. Well I, I again I would say, you know, for me that's that's one of the the again, the keys to really just enjoying giallo films is, I agree. is like yeah just letting go of plot I mean I could tell you like there's certain giallo films I love that I've seen a dozen times and right now if you asked me to recount the the plot intricacies of like Inferno I, I wouldn't be able to do it you know no but
0: way. yeah I
1: can describe you a remember the, the Inferno I mean yeah I, I remember the Inferno yeah I, re, I remember <laughs> some of the killings Yeah, I remember that stuff but it's like yeah the the plot is 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 so secondary right? To, mm-hmm. to these things.
2: And it's one of the reasons I enjoyed watching both of these movies rather late at night, because then they did become hazy and they felt like dreams. And I mean, I, I did love both of these films. Um, they're, they're marvels to look at, and they're so fun to just run around in all of these like dark, scary corners that these films kind of end up
0: in. I think one thing to appreciate about this pairing is despite their similarities... They are fundamentally kind of, kind of different in in plot and even in their own like sub sub genre, right? And I think one thing that I found interesting is looking at these films. You have Lizard, which is basically an investigation film. You even have a cop character, and you have the other characters investigating this murder, right? Uh, whereas All the Colors of the Dark is more of a horror film and a psychological film and a satanic cabal film, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So even within this thing, Jalo, there's all these different approaches, right? There's, yeah, the ones that lean more on the the crime film. There's ones that lean more on the horror film and everything in between. And I really, again, like, I'm fascinated as, of course, listeners uh, know – with genre films and just yeah that repetition and variation that that goes into them and things that even get absorbed into to the canon because right like the origin of these films is yeah they're like inspired by, you know, mid-20th century paperbacks, right? The classic crime tales. And mm-hmm. then they're incorporating Bava. Then they're incorporating Argento. Then they're incorporating Hollywood films, right? I mean, these guys are making these films so fast and so cheap, really, that they don't have time to to think or even think of a good plot. You know, it's just it's that it's that genre feeling, you know? Yeah. It's one of the things that actually makes Jallo uh
1: hard to classify or or open for constant like debate about you know what are the staples of a Jalo film like what do you need and I think like Marsh you're already like hitting on like like exactly why it's kind of hard to classify them because there are some that lay, lean into the supernatural but not all of them do there are some that do really heavily rely on the the mechanics of an investigation, and there are some that don't. You know, there are some that have a a very like you know, banging prog rock score, and and <laughs> there are some that have a an almost classical Morricone score. You know, <laughs> like you you have this 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 great depth and variation, and I think it speaks to a lot of what makes. So many of these Italian filmmakers, people like Fulci and Martino, so malleable, so flexible. You know, when you look at it, it's like they weren't simply masters of like one genre and their influences are so broad and so varied. It often seems that from picture to picture, they're they're kind of riffing on whatever was in their mind at that moment, you know, whatever they found interesting at that moment. I mean, I I saw Fulci in an interview once talking about, like, he's like, well, you know, my favorite films are... Warner Brothers crime films from the 40s. You know, that's really what what interests me. And it's like, then you made like House by the Cemetery, you know, like, I mean, you make some wild ass shit. It's, he's like the master of gore. And he's sitting there being like, you know, Fox films from the 40s. Like, that's it. That's, that's, that's what movies are. And it's like, it's kind of a thing where you just kind of have to see it and feel it and hear it to really go like,
0: Yeah, that's Jalo, you know? Yeah, it's more like noir. It's like a a mood or a cycle less than, yeah, even calling it a genre if you wanted to get into that debate, you know?
2: Yeah, I feel like one of the easiest ways to distinguish them when you're watching it, too, is that oftentimes it's, as you're mentioning with Fulci and the types of films he already liked, is these are these kind of scuzzy, sex-murder, you know, dirty films, but it's clear that the filmmakers are those who respect the fine arts you know yeah. they, they there are so many images in all of these films that feel as though they well i mean not even feel as though they are quite literally referencing other paintings all of these things like having this classical italian education of the fine arts and all of that stuff is
0: present even through the most depraved sequences of these movies yeah they're both like loving london in these films you know they're they're shooting it at, at every angle they can think of up down, sideways, you know, uh, and I even read that all the colors of the dark shares locations with the Omen and uh, Hell House. Uh, so there's you know, overlap.
1: Yes, one hundred percent. The the where they have like the black mass. As soon as they cut to that, like Hell House, The Legend of Hell House is one of my all time favorite haunted house What's movies. The house? And I was like, it's fucking that's <laughs> Hell House. And I was like, of course the shit's gonna go down in Hell House. You know, it's it's this the constant Sort of repurposing of like, man, that location rocks. We got to use that again, yeah. or or just you know that that spirit of pure cinema, you know that that it's cinema that loves cinema. You know, people often when they try to classify, you know, Jalo and its inspirations, you know, people really tend to focus on like the crime elements and the crime novels and Edgar Wallace books and 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 Mario Bava and and stuff like that. But but for me, like. An element that I haven't often heard discussed until like, just before we started recording, Marsh brought it up, but that's always been in my mind, was, you know, I'm like, Blow Up was a huge inspiration to these guys, to the Jallo filmmakers. Like, Blow Up was a seminal moment, I think, for a lot of these Italian filmmakers to be like, hell yeah, like, that fucking rips, and we need to do that, but... There should be more blood, more boobs. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like riffing <laughs> on the idea of, of of blow up, which is an investigation film, a, a jalo of its own kind. You know, and if I were to like say like, what are you gonna find in jalo films? Playing with perception, and and blow up is a film that's all about perception: what we think we saw, what we might have seen, what we're sure we saw. Yeah. You know, making meaning. Right? Yeah. That that sort mm-hmm. of desperate search for meaning in a world where where meaning is is sand in your fingertips. And so I think you see that in a lot of Jallo films. It's it's characters, whether they're, you know, specifically an inspector or just a person who witnesses something, it's that that similar driving force of blow up to say, everyone's telling me to ignore this, everyone's telling me to move on, I should move on, but ah, I really can't, I gotta dig deeper. And that digging deeper leading to increasing uh, anxiety, dread, and then, you know, obviously, death at a certain point. And I think both of these films are doing that. And again, as you pointed out, Marsh, they're both set in in London, That's the right. same place that Blow Up was set.
2: <laughs> it's clearly an inspiration point for both of these films. I, I watched All the Colors of the Dark first, and while watching it, even without specifically thinking of Blow Up outside of the fact that it was London, I did at times think that this is like an Antonioni movie, just the way that there's this existential dread quality to all of these hallucinations and all of these fears that are permeating throughout the whole film. But then when I watched Lizard in a Woman's Skin, it was then engaging very directly in a much seedier way with the hippies of London that are also present in Blow Up. Uh, hippies play a very large part in Lizard in a Woman's Skin and, um, (laughs) It it, it does not appear to be a very appealing milieu in in this film, (laughs) to to say the least. Um, They take it much farther than Antonioni does in showing just the the
0: grim nature of the day-to-day lives of these hippies, what they get up to. Well, you know, Sergio Martino said in an interview, in Italy, if you are not making arthouse films, people treat you with suspicion. But we can't all make films like Antonioni. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But it, yeah, you know, like it, it is such an interesting reference point, and and the swinging London connection, I think, is is so crucial because you know these films were were made for the second and third run theaters right like oftentimes these films weren't even getting like prestige or even normal like urban releases in rome you know like these are grindhouse movies and they are aimed at an audience that isn't uh elite or you know the cultural uh you know whatever so it's interesting again circling back to like yeah just like the The extreme sort of nature of them, how they are kind of like reactionary, or at least there's that element of like the fear of change, the fear of sexuality, the fear of whatever, right? And again, these films hit on that ambivalence because they're aimed at... Just sort of anyone, you know, they're not aimed to be these great artistic things, although they are. So anyway, I don't know. My My brain is melting thinking about these films. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's interesting because these are films that feature female protagonists. But I think, again, both are just so clearly... Uh, a, a sort of male's
2: fantasy of a female protagonist. <laughs> yeah, they're they're both films that are very afraid of female desire and speci- obviously of course specifically female sexual desire. That is something that both films have very much so in common and is that's a, a, a fear of of woman sexuality is a distinguishing feature of the giallo world. <laughs> both films deal with that. I mean in in what is it in a in
1: um A lizard in a woman's skin. What is her, right? They both have a sort of like psychological issue that seems to also revolve around issues of intimacy. So what particularly was it in, how did it play out again in in a lizard
2: in a woman's skin? You know, what is her? I mean, (laughs) well, so she's having, in in lizard in a woman's skin, it's, she's living this very quiet and stuffy life with all of these other family members, like in the apartment. And then it's the encroachment of her neighbors and the noise coming from the neighboring apartment that is both somewhat infecting her dreams, but then also making her call into question the way she lives her life and what she really wants and what does she really desire. Because in these dreams that she's having, they're sexual dreams where she's making love to her neighbor and when she wakes up there is this fear that she can't handle that's why she's always going back to 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 the psychiatrist and being like why am i why is this happening? Like, what are these hippies that are jumping around on the carpet doing LSD all day and playing all this loud music? Like, why can't I get them out of my head? And I feel like that that is specifically the, 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 the fear element in this film, is she can't shake it. Uh, and she's like seeking advice from a goofy psychiatrist to help her purge
0: all of these thoughts. And as he, as the doctor says, his analysis is that, of course, the hippies represent degradation and vice, right? So the sort of opposite of her bourgeois life that she's living with her wealthy father and uh, husband. Mm-hmm. I
1: guess in that respect, too, it it did seem a little, I guess, uh, yeah, again, talking about services on the surface, somewhat similar, too, to all the colors in the dark, is it all the colors in the dark? All the colors.
2: I know, I keep thinking of the night. Yeah, yeah I yeah, do. I know.
1: Because the, the, the <laughs> t- right. All similar to like all the colors in the of the dark, <laughs> because in this, we're also kind of dealing with uh, a sort of sexual frustration and a sexual hang up that that is placed very presently uh, in this character and her relationship with her husband, who's also
0: very bourgeois. Yes, the, the pharmaceutical salesman. Uh, yeah, Jane is having intimacy issues because every time her husband you know, wants to have sex with her, she thinks about uh, the man with blue eyes uh, killing her. And this is tied to her childhood trauma in which she apparently witnessed her mother being murdered and stabbed with a dagger. Uh, and so that's going on on top of the fact that she had a miscarriage after a car accident. So uh, she is this, yes, sexually frustrated, but even more than that, she's lonely. And that's one of the keys and maybe differences, right, is Carol is surrounded by people uh, and Mm -hmm. Jane is like hopelessly alone because Richard is on the road all the time. He's this hustling and bustling salesman, you know? He's always taking calls. He's always going on trips Uh, and so Jane is just yeah locked up with her trauma and at one point she even consults her neighbor which
2: then again there's that weird mirroring between these films where the liberating factor is coming
0: from this neighbor but also a blonde a buxom blonde (laughs) blonde. yes (laughs) wait for the record for the record for the listeners both protagonists brunette both neighbors blonde that's right both husbands french who is the actor in um George Hilton he's actually argentinian yeah right George, right. George Hilton
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> every actor in italian cinema has like seven names you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> Depending on where they're trying to get their most cachet, I think. Yeah, you know? but, but again, to sort of speak on what you were talking about with loneliness, you know, after the psychiatrist in All the Colors of the Dark is just spouting stuff about Freud, you know, explicitly referencing Freud in this film, uh, it's her neighbor who says that your worst illness is loneliness. And it's that she's there then to have a cure For Jane to provide an outlet for that loneliness. You know, this is where I I
1: really pick up to on that, you know, uh, on a certain level. Yeah. Freudian anxiety from the male in relation to female desire, because in all colors of the dark, as you've said, like the husband is is very absent. But it's like George Hilton. The only time he seems to like show up is like dose his wife with pills or be like, let's fuck and she's just caught in this this vicious cycle yes of like loneliness and then him like popping in and being like time to perform and and then him being like why is my wife so broken <laughs> you know
0: like, and he also yeah he wife? also is very against therapy that's like a, a big <laughs> discussion point uh, with him in the movie even
2: thinking about the idea then there of that husband referring to to Jane as like why yeah why is my wife broken it, it suddenly flashed an image that i feel like i should have brought up from lizard in a woman's skin when it is cross cutting between the life of no desire and like the quaint life she has in her apartment with all these other people and the crazy sex parties there's an amazing edit where it cuts from you know hippies rolling around on a dirty carpet next door and then it cuts to Her husband's father, the lawyer politician man, as he's like cracking a giant nut at the dinner table, a a nice visual gag. You know, here she is in the stuffy home. They're literally cracking nuts, you know, while next door the the nuts are are being uh, taken care of. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: uh, I mean, immediately as well, like just this yes uh, obsession with ideas of, of penetration. You know the the knives, and and yes. knives often are are very prominent in a lot of Giallo films. And it really struck me with both of these films, like how phallic the knives are in both of these. Instances right in both of these. I cases. mean, it's
2: extremely sexual when Carol does stab her neighbor Julia in her dream. Full wind
0: machine blowing. You
2: know? Yeah, yeah, giant wind machine, and they're like blowing. It almost feels like it. It's it, honestly the the nightmare like dream sex scenes in *Lizard in a Woman's Skin*. I imagine the set looking like a lot of the stunt arrangements in Jackass, with like giant fans set up. That at any point, if they had turned it up a little bit more, both of those women would have just gone flying across <laughs> yeah. the room. Because like it's in slow motion, and you can see their skin just like flapping in the breeze. Brilliant, yeah, flapping. It looks like they're gonna fall over. Um, but yes, it is a very. It's the knife is very phallic in that moment. Very, you know, she's penetrating her. But it is then in her chest and the
0: breasts, and it's. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's very present. I love that the the murder hallucination in Lizard, uh, the second hallucination of the film, right? Because the film opens with a brief one that it then returns to in more detail. And as a comparison point or, or sort of like as a visual representation of Carol's life in this dream, her family is represented like the family from te- like Texas chainsaw massacre yeah. right she's mm-hmm. like hallucinating the dinner scene but they're all sitting around the table and their faces are like caked in powder uh, and it's truly fucking bizarre yeah, they look like they're decaying and that their faces are frozen in screens. And that was when I got really stoked because I was remembering, you know, Fulci was a communist. So, like, he <laughs> he has no love, uh, you know, for the, the people he's depicting here, right? And I think that's also, you know... An interesting thing to think about, like, as much as he can express himself politically uh, within genre films, but uh, it seemed to me like Lizard was more pointedly a stab at the bourgeois, uh, whereas Colors of the Dark is a little more, they're a little more middle middle class, lower middle class, relative to, I mean... Carol's dad is like an influential politician. He had a
2: great time poking fun at him. Uh, The line that really stuck with me was when they were shuffling around outside, it was the father with uh, Carol's husband and he's just like, the cold is making my arthritis kick in, you know, and it was just, (laughs) Fulci had a lot of fun mocking that guy for sure. That guy
0: is smoking in every scene he's in. I started to pick up on it immediately as a smoker. I'm you know, attuned to these things, but he as a cigar or a <laughs> pipe in every fucking shot, oh, yeah. uh, and it's a, just a really nice touch. I thought that that guy was was delightful oh, as yeah. just like the scummy bourgeois lawyer politician, yeah, you know?
1: lurking everywhere trying to manipulate events to the best of his abilities. But you're right. I mean, I, it was something that i had written down in my notes. And again, in in sort of like binging these two films, like almost immediately back to back. That that it's and, and because they're so similar, to to sort of see how they both deal with similar themes or material or plot elements or settings. And it, it did really strike me how much more playful Fulci is. And Fulci is a guy that if you listen to like him in interviews, like he has a great sense of humor. He's a very like warm, funny guy, but also a a cynical guy, an ironic guy. And it was like hitting me a lot when I was watching this. And as the film went on that I was like, he is like, yeah, he's taking the piss to use a British phrase. Like, at London, <laughs> at England, at the upper class, at the bourgeois. I mean, you're talking about the the the, the dad or the, the patriarch or whatever. I remember a, a, a shot where they're sort of walking around on the grounds of his like estate or something. And it's like, oh, what do Englishmen have? They have dogs. And he has like eight large like hounds around him and it just seemed again like a visual gag to be like here's this man smoking a pipe wondering like you know why is my daughter nuts or whatever and why is her husband so dissatisfied or you know what's up with these hippies and there's just like all these fucking like really large dogs like circling around him in a rowdy (laughs) way yeah there's like a, a lot of those like bits, you know, and little little intricacies of like English manners that get picked up upon.
2: Like especially when he hears that the dirty hippie neighbor has been murdered, and he essentially just smirks and says like oh, I'm not surprised." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: There's another bit in the film that that I I was like laughing at. I was like this is this is this is comedy so like when carol at a certain point is you know seemingly on the verge of a nervous breakdown and they're really struggling the family's struggling what do we do what do we do and so right when when the police are in they're like all right this 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 chick is under suspicion and she might be nuts. Uh, She's like committed to this hospital.
0: Right. Because the police know that her, the dream she told her doctor is basically exactly what happened in the murder. Right. And so Stanley
1: Baker, as the inspector is like, this is too much of a coincidence. We got to keep an eye on this at a certain point in this, in this like mental hospital. And she, she gets up and, and uh, sees one of the, the, hippies from her dream right on the grounds lurking in the bushes you know uh, again perception is 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 always so so much a part of this stuff you know catching a glimpse of somebody someone lurking somewhere somewhere mm-hmm. somehow somebody's just suddenly invading a frame and and she's disturbed by it and she she starts like sort of running around searching for this guy or trying to get away from him and in the hospital she suddenly stumbles into a room, you know, she sees like a door open and she goes into this room in the hospital. And for some inexplicable reason, there's, there's four dogs tied up uh, on, on some sort of medical apparatus. And the dogs have been basically flayed open and there's all kinds of tubes coming from these still, still living dogs. And we see they're like, bloody hearts pumping and and fluids sort of like flowing out of them I mean it is horrifying it is graphic it is grimy and grotesque and she is like the audience suddenly just like stricken with the the nastiness of whatever this is whatever's going on in this fucking hospital and I loved it because then like she's like screaming of course and she's like now of course like losing her mind and then the next, like, moment is, like, they're sedating her. She's in her bed. And this doctor who, like, runs the hospital or whatever, like, his reaction to her is, like, I'm so sorry someone left that door open. You really shouldn't have seen that. And also, you shouldn't be so curious. No explanation no. of, like, what it no. is. You know, but, like, that's it. And, like, I'm laughing at that. I mean, I think that's, that is, like playfulness on Fulci's part.
0: Did you read, Andy, that Fulci was facing a, a two-year prison sentence unless they could prove to, to a court that that was fake and those weren't real dogs and so they had the, the special effects guy show up in Italian court and get him off? Yes. Uh, by like bringing the dogs, can you imagine that scene? You oh know? yeah, I mean it's extremely
2: realistic. And then, funny enough, just worth bringing up the fact that the other film also includes yes. a dog being sacrificed during a black mass. Yes, so it does. both of these films have some sad images of uh, dogs in some tough spots. Well,
1: and it, it's interesting that you brought that up because you know I think this was like a big thing. Uh, this is this has happened before. This happened. There's there's other stories of this with with Italian horror films of like, you know, and they were dragged into court and blah blah blah. And and I know a very similar thing happened to Rogero Deodato in making Cannibal Holocaust that at a certain point like he was dragged in front of a court oh, yeah. because they were like, Whoa, dude, like you straight up like fucking kill people out there. Like, what the hell happened? And what about all the goddamn
0: Prove to me you didn't do this thing you filmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know?
1: But I think that's again like Part of why Giallo films and, and Italian horror of the, the 60s and 70s were so influential, they really did introduce new standards and new approaches to, to gore that really wasn't being, being shown in, in other places, you know? I mean, it was really the Giallo films that were the proto-slash films that inspired things like... Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth—that that the Italians really set a new a new bar, a new a new new standard for cinematic violence in these kinds of movies.
0: I was thinking too the portrayal of the British police in uh, Lizard is <laughs> is also extremely humorous. Again, from that kind of Fulci perspective, where. Although, yes, Inspector Corvin is, is I guess, fairly competent. He seems to be the only one who's competent because all of the, like, side police characters are portrayed like absolute lunatics, right? There's a <laughs> lot of scenes with these, like, forensics guys, you know, going over all the details. And, like. <laughs>
2: Sometimes it's hard to tell if it is, like, intentional that they're lunatics and, like, goofy at their job or if it's because... They' smaller characters and had a weird actor dubbing them so specifically the guy that's des- the forensics guy that's describing all the wet footprints around the bed to point out the fact that it was it had to have been someone from within the apartment building that committed the murder because there were no wet footprints around the corpse The, vo- the voice of that guy in the English dub um, is psychotic
1: I-, I would like to turn your attention to a discovery which we consider is very important to the case. It is this, Inspector Corvin, uh, that a wet sole of a shoe or a bare foot will always leave a print, even after wiping your feet thoroughly, if you, uh, if you understand me, uh, and, and wet prints can be picked up. And it was raining that night. Exactly. Uh, so any person who was there that night get their prince behind you, see?
2: I, I, I really wonder where they found that guy. And it's one of those things where I think he's watching, you know, you've probably got maybe an English actor doing the voice, watching the mannerisms of someone who might not be from England. So yeah. he's reinterpreting <laughs> those mannerisms to make weird noises. like. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, it's an Italian you know? guy
0: playing an English guy dubbed by an English guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah
1: a lot of cognitive dissonance uh, a yeah lot of i mean it's one of there. my
2: favorite things about one of my all-time favorite films the the film cemetery man with rupert everett and that film is so surreal largely in part of the dub um and it's the film is supposed to be in english because they wanted rupert everett to be in it and it's yeah it is that crazy dub that makes every encounter feel like it's happening on another planet
0: and he's like the inheritor of of all this stuff, right? Your boy Savoy, or Savoy or whatever. So
2: he is, yeah, because he was like Argento's ad, Michel Suave, That's how Suave. I've always said it, but I have I have no way of knowing. <laughs> I haven't like <laughs> heard it said by a by a professional, you know. I
0: mean, I guess another like this is obvious, but like to me, these films are are very much you know the bridge between Peeping Tom and Psycho and Hitchcock to De Palma, and to you know, even that you know, not just slashers, but the split diopters, the zooms, the voyeurism. Everyone's being photographed behind their backs. Everyone's being blackmailed. You know, like (laughs) uh, in in a lizard in a woman's skin. At some point they convince you that like every person is being blackmailed. In in fact they could they convince you if you're along for the ride and I certainly was. They convince you that every member of the family did the murder. And I was I was marveling at this because I watch a lot of procedural bullshit, right? Kyle and I And so watch some midsummer Murders, you know, stuff like that. And I I feel like I'm pretty, pretty good, you know, on the the uptake. But like this shit's so ridiculous that they had me fooled a couple times, right? Because (laughs) they're shifting it around. It's like, no, the father did it. No, the husband did it. No, the stepdaughter did it.
2: I mean, I think it goes back to what Andy was talking about in terms of all of these people feeling like archetypes and not really feeling like human beings with motives. Yeah, I felt like they
0: all could do it.
2: They they truly all could. I mean, it's you just have to take the film's word for it <laughs> at every point. I mean, you know, we won't go into the specifics right now, but even all the colors of the dark ends with a sudden exposition dump that just suddenly, if you weren't really paying attention, like lays out what actually happened. And it's kind of confusing and makes you retroactively think about the film. Film. because truly anything is possible in films like these and that's again, I think
1: such a a a, a benchmark of of for me like Jallo films. Uh, I saw uh, there's a great documentary that came out uh, a couple of years ago called All the Colors of Jallo and uh, I can't remember who it is, but there's some some uh, one of the screenwriters who wrote several, Jolly, uh, this Italian guy, I can't remember who, who he was or what he was, but, but he was like in his interview, he was like going at, you know, great lengths to talk about how, you know, the essence of Jallo in the investigation is logic and I was like laughing when I watched this
0: documentary <laughs> and when I first saw that, whatever, because I was like logic. Yeah, these films are like known for their red herrings. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, they're, right. They're, like
1: <laughs> logic has nothing to do with like the, the 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 development of these these murders and stories and twists <laughs> and turns. And yes, like often a lot of of. Jallo films will just, yes, yeah, suddenly end with a character emerging out of nowhere as like the masked killer, the person. Uh, and this guy was like, you know, and the thing about Jallo is you can go back and you can rewatch it and you can pick up on all the clues as you go along. And I was thinking specifically with Lizard and a Woman Skin that if I watched this movie again, like 10 times, I wouldn't be able to keep track of anything in that sense, you know? <laughs> well,
0: and on that note, we should talk at least briefly about what I was in my mind describing as agitated mise en scène. Uh, part of the problem mm. with even just like following Lizard is the frenetic style. It is nonstop panning, zooming. It is it is a hectic film uh and it's one that is is right because it's so hectic you're only seeing like little glimpses of things sometimes right there's not a lot of like establishing shot and then like cutting logically the cutting is almost illogical
2: mm-hmm. there was a really funny moment when I was watching where I was like looking at my notes and I wrote down oh this one is much flashier and then I looked up at the screen and it was like a sudden bunch of light bulbs were lit and it like flashed on my face and it does encapsulate how this movie feels suddenly out of nowhere there could be all these things thrown at you
0: and it is just glimpses as we're moving around yeah yeah, it's it's a manic style for sure. All the colors is is way more relaxed uh, than than Fulci here.
1: Keep you I mean, on your toes. I mean, yeah, keep you in a constant state of of I think yeah anxiety as well. I mean, it, it reminded me really watching these two here, um, and and particularly because of a film that we had just recently watched in our dive into German expressionism. You know, one of the Again, you know, if you think about the influences, and we've talked about how how there's such a hodgepodge here with Jalo filmmakers and the influences, you know, one of the keys to to German Expressionism, which is you know even a thing that would then go on to influence Hitchcock and and you know where Hitchcock learned a lot of his tricks, is this very subjective approach to the cinematography to, yes. to the world of like the being in the film, you know this sense that you're very uneasy. And that's, that is again, you know, one of the things when people do try to be like, what do you see in Jalo films? Like, They loved the idea of like playing with POV and, and, you know, first person cinema at
0: times. Yeah. The camera and editing in both films is more than not explicitly tied to like the subjective state of the character, right? It's always reflecting this, yeah, traumatic, you know, kind of personality, then reflected back out on the world in this, like, yeah, totally nuts way. And I think that subjective visual
2: perspective along with the idea that these characters are archetypes and you guys talking about how at any point you did believe what the film was presenting us in terms of who was the killer all along, it makes me think of that scene where after she sees the dead dogs and she's talking about, oh, a hippie was chasing me and the doctors are trying to convince her that that was a hallucination, you have a nurse say hallucination is believing what you are seeing and in a way that's sort of what both of these films are all the time and that's why it's so easy to believe who the killers are it's the film is presenting you these subjective hallucinations and you sort of have to just believe what's being put in front of your eyes
0: yeah because in all the colors of the dark it's like we're we're seeing this repeated image of of this man with blue eyes uh stabbing and then he's like invading her reality and stalking her but then it's much more complicated than that yeah. you know but like i don't i don't even know how mm-hmm. to like wrap my head around it <laughs> right and even in that you know <laughs> when she
1: in all the colors of the dark goes to see this you know psychoanalyst for the first time you know he, and she's like basically i feel like i'm losing my mind here blah 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 he very explicitly says to her like you're not crazy you're not crazy. Like you gotta, you gotta hold on to that. So there, whatever you're seeing, for whatever reason, like there's a reason for it. You're not losing your mind. And there's like that immediate thing where she's like, "But I, I swear to God, he was just in the waiting room." Yeah. And she has to go to the the receptionist to be like, "Tell me you saw this guy." And the receptionist even is like, "Well, there was a guy right there." Yeah. I mean, I think I think she's right. Yeah. I think there was a dude there. You know. And the doctor's like, "Look, you." You aren't crazy, like, there's got to be logic behind all the stuff that you're seeing. And both films try to, in their own way, uh, then make sense of that
0: subjectivity.
1: I think both end up in very different places with it. I do
0: think, though, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the end, it's like both of these characters, however agitated... And, and however much, like, trauma they have feeding into or repression they have feeding into these fantasies, they're both not crazy. And a lot of what we maybe assumed were hallucinations throughout the film were actually real (laughs) right
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah i mean i think the heart of both of these films is that idea that your subjective experience and what feels real to you is still real like it's it's the reality of that feeling is does speak to reality in a way even if there are other factors that are clouding the way you're perceiving that reality but what you are feeling yourself is still a reality and that's why i think for me over
1: the years the more i've i've uh, grappled with giallo and what i find so interesting about them what i what i'm drawn to what i'm pulled to is that when people like classify it and and again try to be like well it's roots are in this and you know clearly they all loved you know crime stories and they loved hollywood and and you know blah 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 and hitchcock and this that and the other like i often over the years have, have increasingly situated them more as like European in nature and particularly like a, a post-war European cinema, you know, again, like Deleuze's concept of like the new hero to emerge, uh, in, in, in post-war Italian cinema. And, and particularly Deleuze Deleuze talks about in, in this, this new time image cinema, that's really going to start to, to blossom out of, out of Europe you know, Deleuze says that the new hero in this is is the seer, not the agent, right? It's the person who's seeing, not necessarily like doing. And you see that in so many, again, I mean, the idea of an investigation of of one kind or another, whether, whether it's an explicit investigation or somebody simply trying to make sense of what they see or what they think they saw. Again, like, blow up. Right. You know, what did I see? And I'm just trying to figure out what I fucking saw or what I'm constantly seeing, you know? Yeah, there's a really there's a
0: really good moment uh, early on in All the Colors of the Dark when Jane looks out the window as her uh, husband Richard's going to work and sees him looking up at the window and seeing the blonde that's moved in in the apartment, and she is perceiving a connection between them that does not exist. And in fact, of course, the connection ultimately will become her, who she's also now looking at the blonde woman in the window uh, and establishing that connection. But in that moment, you can sense, you know, Jane going, oh, yeah, my my traveling salesman husband, like, of course, he's stepping out on me. Uh, and I was shocked to find out uh, that Well, I guess he kind of was, actually, (laughs) uh, by the end of it all. He isn't initially, but he does kind of fuck around with uh, her sister later in the the film. But I was going to say... Well,
2: fuck around with slash
0: kill. Look, we're not there yet. (laughs) Very in Um, In in Lizard, uh, the husband is, of course, uh, philandering with his uh, secretary, who's also very present at the apartment in a way where it's like wow, this guy's just got his mistress around a lot, you know, typical. Um, But yeah, there's there's like plot points that hinge on suspicions of infidelity, right? And so we're in that territory of, yeah, everyone's peeping on each other. Every single character, whether they've committed a horrible crime or not, has something to hide, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is buried under
1: the surface for, for everyone, you know, the secrets, that's, that's always the, the turning point. And yeah, in some of the films it does just suddenly reveal itself in yeah an an exposition dump, but, but like, that's the, (laughs) the real pleasure. It's like these murders punctuated by revelations, revelations along the way of, of, of people suddenly, Confessing, you know that maybe what you saw was true, and and it does in uh, a lizard in a woman's skin at a time start to become ridiculous. You know, yes. everyone, even the stepdaughter, right? Even the the daughter of Frank's first of a Frank's first marriage suddenly <laughs> right, comes out yeah. with secrets and and things that she's taken part in that that seem so out of left field
0: you know you know on to that point the titular line of course of a lizard in a woman's skin is one of the great jokes of the film and it is a joke about perception because I guess you know at this point we can maybe reveal a little bit of what's actually going on in lizard (laughs) uh, which is that Carol actually murdered her neighbor, as we saw in the opening that we assumed was a hallucination. And it's part of her plan to get away with the crime is to, you know, feign insanity and split personality. And part of her plan hinges on having witnesses to the crime who can place her there so she can sell this idea of her split personality. However, the plan backfires because the two hippies that appear in her dream that we see who witness the crime, they're up on the balcony like Statler and Waldorf on LSD. I thought to say that, I was like yeah. Muppets.
1: You know? yeah. yeah,
0: they're like Muppets on LSD laughing in the rafters, seeing this murder happen. And then when Stanley Baker goes to interview them, uh, they say, yeah, we saw a lizard in a woman's skin." So she didn't have an actual witness. And that leads Stanley Baker's investigator character to then, you know, not look at her as the killer, which was her plan all along, was to get off that way. And then so he starts thinking it was the dad. No, it was the husband. Uh, And he starts prodding around and then everyone's secrets are revealed. But it all centers on, This Fulci joke about LSD, right? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: I actually really like the explanation of the crime if it was pinned on the father or the husband. I thought it was like a really interesting idea. And it's kind of that idea of the investigator as an artist sort of creating this own story that like sounds fascinating, but the truth is actually a bit more banal that it was Carol. She did just kill her neighbor. But I like the idea that because one of his original theories is that because she has a dream journal and she's writing down all of her dreams that either the father or her husband, was referring to this dream journal and then committing this crime and arranging it in a way that resembled her dream. And that to me is fascinating. I love the idea of like even a serial killer, like I don't know how a serial killer would sort of find uh, people for this, but to read people's dream journals and then commit murders directly out of the dream journal, Mm -hmm. you know, because even then when they're explaining All these odd details like, oh, she's wearing, like the the neighbor is wearing brand new boots when she was killed. And so it, it must have been someone else because it resembled the dream. The boots were put on her because it resembled Carol's dream. But the reality is, no, she just had the boots on and Carol killed her. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, he's creating, yeah, these these alternate (laughs) narratives, right? And it is... It is so compelling in that regard. Yeah, I was getting really wrapped
2: up in the plot at this moment because I thought, this is really clever. And then, yeah, Fulci just told me he was kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, yeah, and there's, there's a couple other good gags like that as, uh, you know, shout out to to Jack Easton on Twitter, who is Irish and said that, you know, he told me to watch the English dub of this because it has the worst Irish accent he's ever heard. And that's a very funny moment when the first person Scotland, Yard brings in to interrogate uh, interrogate about this murder is some poor Irish guy and they're just like berating him and he's lying about having done it and he has the worst fake Irish accent ever. Uh, and it, uh, to me, it was like, yeah, they just rousted the first Irish guy they could find, you know, as like a joke about British police, you know. know? <laughs> did, so sure, sure. I, I guess oh, the
1: question finished. I uh, is, did you both watch it dubbed in English or did you watch it in Italian? Watched it in English. In English. Oh, I I, I watched it in Italian. I watched it in <laughs> Italian. So that scene was, was funny to me. Because here's this Irish guy speaking Italian, and then, like, it climaxes once Stanley Baker's like, this guy's full of shit, you know, get him out of here or whatever. And as they're dragging him off, he sings, like, verses of, like, an Irish protest song, you know, about, like, you know, up the Irish, up the rebels or whatever, but it's being sung in Italian. And I was, like, having a laugh because, again, the cognitive (laughs) dissonance of, like, the 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 joke of the Irish guy. and then, you know, he, he's he's now singing, you know the the Irish national anthem in Italian as he's dragged away by the British police. i I really enjoyed
2: that, but that's funny. to our listeners, I would recommend watching it in English because the majority of the actors, are speaking English, and it matches with their, yeah. with their it's lips. It's got Stanley and then also, Baker's
0: real audio and some of the yeah. other guys.
2: It does have that classic thing, though, where there was one scene where they just didn't have the dub, and there was a scene that was in Italian, and I had to turn the subtitles back on, but it returned to English for the rest of the copy. yeah. And, and I did notice, like, I, I
1: guess I just fucked up, you know, but it was, again, like, funny for me because whenever there would be, like, a bunch of extras in the background, you know, like, robber, 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 like, making noise, like, when the cops are all piling out of their cars... Uh, the like the back the backing track were, was in English, so there were again these like really like <laughs> strange moments of cognitive dissonance of like Stanley Baker yelling things in Italian, and then like all the cops around him being like, "Oh, blimey, get that guy down," you know. <laughs> <It> was, like, <laughs> Wow, you know.
2: That sounds awesome,
1: actually. I had a blast. (laughs) I actually think I told you, too, about that experience with my first DVD of... The first DVD that Anchor Bay released of Deep Red, they had, like, a note on the DVD explaining, you know... Well, you know, the Italians had different standards for audio than, than the rest of the, the cinema world. And some of the audio tracks are are lost or damaged. We, we cobbled this one together and it's going to have both Italian and English. And it was this really funny, uh, funny moment that was, of course, totally unintentional, but there's like mid-scene a switch from English to Italian. And in Deep Red, there's this guy giving a lecture and suddenly like, from one sentence to the next, he switches from English to Italian, and then there's just this this cut, you know, this just, like, cutaway or whatever of some guy in the audience, some old guy who's, like, punching his, his hearing aid and, like, pulls his hearing aid out and, like, looks at it and, like, fiddles with his hearing aid and then puts it back in, and it created this beautiful like unintentional gag of like this guy being like what the fuck's going on with my hearing aid did this guy just switch to italian suddenly mid-sentence like what's happening but i guess they've they fixed that because now in the the copies of deep red that are out there it's just the 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 purely english well um, if you want that
0: experience go on amazon prime and watch violent city because that thing is with with charles bronson and that movie the the copy they've got up there is Quite liberally switching between English and Italian uh, in no logical way. Yeah, it rocks. One thing we haven't talked about in in Lizard that I do want to bring up is the the flying animals of the film. First, there's uh, like a... In one of her hallucinations, there's this epic like swan or goose uh, situation <laughs> going on. Uh, and then she's also attacked by bats, uh, which I feel like is worth mentioning because uh, especially the bat sequence, it's like a, a very well done special effects uh sequence for doing a, like a a crazy bat attack.
2: <laughs> I just assumed they were real bats. Were they, was, I
0: mean, do I... Do you I, think I, it was fake? I, yeah, I think it was fake. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching Jackass all week. I see animals,
2: I think it's real. Another film that blends, <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, anyway.
2: Well,
1: yeah, I mean, the effects are great. Doesn't she also, like, grab one out of the air? Yeah, there? That,
0: the bat sequence is very disgusting because they're, like, latching onto her and biting her and there are some, yeah, some raw close-ups. Uh, but in general, you know they're they're zipping around and i was cracking up because the opening like credits shot of of all the colors of the dark is like a shot of a lake at dawn and you just like heard geese and i was like oh my god dude like it's all connected you know (laughs) conspiracy mind um well it is and it isn't right
2: yeah i almost thought that that goose swan thing may have even been like a stork, because
0: I don't, you know, like, oh. and then
2: I was confusing both of the films because the um, All the Colors of the Dark has the miscarriage subplot. Right. And that's why I thought maybe, like, oh, a stork, I see, like, it's coming as, as like, a specter of, like, delivering a baby. Oh, wow. Um, and then I realized I was watching a, a different movie. Yeah. Yeah, bro. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, with the bat sequence as well,
1: I, I think it's, it comes in a moment that is, I think, more... Um, visually representative of what a lot of people assume, you know, Jalo films have, because she's being pursued before she gets to the bat sequence by suddenly a man like wielding a knife, like trying to murder her and chasing her all over the place. And he isn't masked per se, but he is wearing some leather, which is a a thing that often people associate with, with the leather clad killer wielding a knife. But he's like some guy on a motorcycle and he sort of chases her up into this building, and it's some some uh, what is it, Alexandra Palace, I think it was. And and as she goes, she's like trying to get away from it, so she's climbing like higher and higher and higher into this this building to eventually get on the roof. But in that sequence where she's she's up there near the roof with all the bats, I was like, bats in the Belfry, nuts, crazy. Ah, I get it. I was mm. thinking, but again, maybe I'm. Uh, you know, reading a little too much into that gag, if that was a gag, you know?
2: <laughs> Listen, Andy, you—what you, with, these, with these movies, you, you can't be at fault for reading anything into them because as they argue, your subjective experience is real and valid. That's so whatever right. truth you see
0: is actually in there. Oh, 100%. Well, here's Not the, there. okay. In, in On that note, the truth that I see here is that the leader of this satanic cult Looks like Roy Scheider in all that jazz, <laughs> and I couldn't stop thinking about that uh, throughout the entire film.
2: Yeah, wow, he really does. Yeah, he does.
1: He looks like Bob Fosse. Yes,
0: yeah, looks like Bob Fosse. So we should, yeah, we should talk about uh, what happens there, which is in All the Colors of the Dark, Jane uh, befriends her blonde neighbor, uh, and they become uh, close very quickly, and the neighbor, Mary. Uh, tells Jane, you know, I've got something that'll, you know... We'll fix you right up. Yeah, you don't need psychoanalysis. You don't need drugs. You don't need medication.
1: (laughs) I got just the thing for you.
0: Yeah. And at this point, Jane is being, you know, stalked, uh, presumably by this killer quite often. (laughs) She sort of reached like a fever pitch. And so she's looking for anything to sort of get her out of this or even understand what's going on. And so she's invited to a black mass. And so 30 minutes into the film, she. Uh, you know goes with Mary uh, to this to the guy. hell house yeah to the hell they literally go to the hell house and then yeah we we get introduced to you know what you think a, a satanic ritual in a giallo film looks like right so everyone's got you know like some kind of weird makeup on and there's smoke in the room and the shots are foregrounded with objects and there's symbols everywhere and there's, you know, psychedelic uh, rock playing and repetitive rhythmic editing. And that's, you know, that's another thing both of the films had in common is repeated shots, like, in a very purposeful, uh, subjective way, the use of repetition and zooms in particular. Uh, Because there's some moments in, in... there's more than one like black mass sequence in this movie. And and they're using, yeah, quite amazing, like repeated actions and overlapping actions and just to make it super fucking disorienting as you know the Bob Fossey of of this cult is presiding <laughs> with his long fingernails.
1: Yeah, there was one that was really nuts for me where the camera seems to be like tracking back and forth, like oscillating back and forth. And the people are all like in a line, shuffling back and forth as well. But like, in, in like on like a different rhythm to the cameras, yeah. like tracking back and forth. So it creates this like crazy like seesaw effect of of your like perception of like the space and the people and the events. It
2: was yeah, like, it made me feel dizzy. Yes, I was gonna say it was like it was a dizzying like experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's clearly riffing a bit too on Rosemary's Baby. I think yes. that was. I mean, that's typically what my mind goes to when I think like of an underground black mass. You know, a group of people getting together. But I do think that. It found a, a big source of inspiration there. Yeah,
0: Martino said it was his main inspiration for the film, ah, straight up. Then, yeah,
2: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it checks out. Then. Yeah, <laughs> one of those one of those extras looked exactly to me like Elizabeth Moss, who I could imagine actually attending
0: <laughs> such an event um, in real life. Yeah, but they were reading Dianetics and not uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. What's the book her husband gets? Magic and the Supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> another, another, like, red herring planted for us.
1: But I also looked at it, for me, again, as, you know, like we mentioned Blow Up before and, and Blow Up being this film, uh, you know, on, uh, in swinging London in the 60s. And now we're in swinging London on the, the tail end of it all. We're in the 70s now. And it was almost like, well, this is, of course, the logical extension of all that yes. free love and all that, you know hippie bullshit. You're eventually... You're you're gonna have to get your kicks in a little bit more of an extreme way. It's gonna lead to a black mass kissy orgy.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they're not <laughs> you know they're not explicitly hippies like they are in Lizard. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, they they represent the same thing in both films. This this excess, this vice, this mm-hmm. you know, yeah, this this thing you're repulsed by and attracted to, you know, and that's very much her experience uh, as. She is sort of initiated into the cult uh, in a very fragile uh, and impressionable state of mind. And so even then for her, it's like, did that even happen? Like... I mean, she's basically raped by all these people, and it's like, Mm -hmm. they kill an animal, you know, she's all drugged up, Uh, it's it's a fucked up thing, you know?
2: And then if you think it can't even escalate any further, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's session number two of this Black Mass where she just replaces her neighbor Mary by... Killing Mary. They're, they say very specifically that woman doesn't exist anymore. Like, you're cool. We don't need Mary. Like, she brought you here. You can replace her. And they have, as a way of initiation. I believe the term
0: is free her, Ryan, not replace her. Uh, sure. You gotta free <laughs> her by plunging the dagger into her belly.
2: Right. I have to put myself in the Black Mass hippie mindset. I forgot. Yeah. The, bla- the, the Black Mass group here have a one in, one out policy that they take very <laughs>
1: very seriously i think it is also important to note though after the first you know black mass and i kept calling it the kissy orgy because they they, before yeah it's like it's implied of course, but it just seemed like at first that she's just everyone's kissing her just
0: smooching her yeah yeah. she's just
1: being like covered in like kissies uh but then we go from that that experience for her that yes it's like incredibly overwhelming and then it's like cut to
0: husband's back and they are now yes they're, they're banging having sex oh yeah. yeah
1: to to completion for both of them
0: and, and yeah it appears that she's sort of cured you know for the time being but very quickly uh, that facade crumbles as she's out at a restaurant with her husband and looks out the window and sees the strange man who's been stalking her this entire goddamn time uh, and so she goes back to <laughs> (laughs) The Black Mass, as Ryan alluded to, and and she kills her neighbor in a ritual. Uh, And that's when, yeah, she starts to uh, realize that, yeah, that this isn't good. This is all very bad. You know, she wakes up in a field wondering, did I just murder that woman in a satanic ritual? Not really sure uh, if I did or not. And of course she did. And she did. (laughs) The last person I would ever give my life for in a satanic
2: ritual would be a neighbor. Dear God. (laughs) They were fast friends. They had tea together uh, in one scene. Yeah, I'd happily give up my neighbors to a black mass, but I would never let them replace me in in a club like that. (laughs) That's, that's, that's what I mean though It was like so
1: It was like even delivered Like so matter-of-factly By her neighbor Where she's just kind of like yeah. Confiding in her Like I'm struggling here You know My husband thinks I'm frigid But I got other problems In my mind And it ain't that And this that And she's like
2: Anch'io ho avuto i miei problemi Non come i tuoi Forse più gravi E ne sono uscita fuori completamente Ma come hai fatto? Lo sai che cos'è un sagba?
1: Mi fai paura
0: why have you ever tried a Black Mass? <laughs>
1: it's yeah. like it, was, it was like as a yeah. matter of fact She doesn't
0: really soft pedal it. I mean, she's kind of a gentle character, but she just straight up is like, yeah, you done Black Mass? Uh, let's go. Let's do it. And and then she gets roped in. But from there, it's her, yeah, trying to figure out, you know, like the, the truth of this situation, which is, of course, that a lot of this is being manipulated behind the scenes. And that her connection to this cult is much deeper than simply, uh, yeah, her neighbor. She's uh, she's perhaps a, a legacy <laughs> charter we discover. That's right. And so, like you know, she doesn't really know who to trust. You know, she has she thinks you know in her subjectivity that she's totally insane and. Basically everything she's been seeing is is actually ha- is actually happening, right? Right. With the exception, of course, of when she has her premonitions later. Well, there is after
1: this, you know, and after the events with her, you know, now really even more so on the 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 verge of of a total like mental breakdown. Doctor Burton. Uh, coming to the rescue and right. and and saying you really shouldn't be alone, so please come stay at my summer home. Yeah, you know my house. my country house, and he steals her away to the country house, and and she's she's met by this this friendly caretaking couple that that watch the 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 home for for Dr. Burton when he's not there, and <laughs> and it seems again as though she's. She's safe, you know? She's she's going to get herself out of whatever's happening, and here's this nice, charming, old English couple, and Dr. Burton's going to take care of everything. And the next morning, that, which, again, was a great uh, visual staging of it, you know, she wakes up and heads down to the breakfast table to discover... That charming English couple who are sitting there, the, the old man reading the paper, the, the, the woman, you know, looking into her coffee or tea or eggs or whatever, that they both... Were murdered in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to her. She discovers both of them, and I loved like the the old man just propped up with that like newspaper in front of him, like his eyes wide open, and and she kind of like peels the newspaper back a little bit and sees that his throat has been slashed brutally. <laughs> like it's awesome the way that scene. Yeah, it's a out. good
2: gag, and that that sequence too is funny because it's the most British thing imaginable. This old couple living out in the countryside, and then this film. Only having an Italian dub <laughs> and hearing Italian voices come out of the pair of them, it, it really
0: disorients you. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, uh, she thinks she's safe but far from it as the strange man with blue eyes uh, attacks her uh, and, and lays out the, the truth of what's uh, been going on this whole time, which is essentially that her mother was in this particular organization. And her murder was in a ritualistic fashion as she was trying to escape the group and was killed because you are not allowed to do that, right? And so he explains to her uh, that she's crossed the borders of reality and she can't go back and that's the only way to leave them now. Is to die. I love too the idea, like that
1: that is expressed there. You know, this this crossing the borders of reality, which is to me again like entering into any Jalo film. You know, that's the way I see it. It's like you you are you are crossing into something beyond reality, beyond a reality that is that is logical, uh, that is that is explainable, that is even at times like material. You know?
0: Yeah, and it's at this point that Richard uh turns out not to be just this shitty husband because he comes to her rescue in a in a violent manner. Holy as shit. She stabs uh the strange man with a pitchfork uh in the back.
1: Yeah. I, he kills like quite a few people. I can't remember everybody, but like I just wrote down on <laughs> my notes, like Richard the Killing Machine. Like suddenly, yes. her pharmaceutical salesman, you know, dope of a husband yep. is like just murking everybody. Like yeah. any Satanist He's that goes anywhere full death
0: wish in this situation. And I <laughs> yeah. and I thought about it because again, I think that speaks to the ambivalence that is embedded in both of these films. Uh, at the end of the day. Richard, the pharmaceutical salesman, kills as many people in this film as the satanic cult. <laughs> yeah. And so at the end of the day, it's a wash in terms of body count. He
1: fucking murders like suddenly <laughs> in like yeah. the span of like not even 10 minutes. He just like, yeah, is. Yeah. He's got a lot of blood on his hands. Who knew he had it in him? I was I, shocked. I didn't.
0: Like I was extremely <laughs> I, yeah, I, truly yeah, did not. I was extremely <laughs> distrustful of him when he was like pouring all those vitamins down her throat in the beginning of the movie. Very suspect guy, but he turns into, yeah, yeah he turns into this killing machine. Uh, and the next <laughs> and the next person he kills uh, is Barbara, her sister, because big reveal this I didn't see coming because it's not actually indicated in any way, uh, is <laughs> that no. Barbara is actually the mastermind behind the satanic cult, and she's been pulling the strings all along uh, for reasons that are, are later than revealed that have something to do with, you know, their mother's death and their inheritance, and whether or not we want to unpack that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there, look, there's a really Let there's a lie, really odd I, I can't I can't get over it, right? Because it's like all of a the sudden they're like, yeah, the man who who murdered your your mom died or was caught and died recently. Mm-hmm. And so you guys are coming into a bunch of money. Yes. And I was like, well, her murder? Why does her murderer have title of? It doesn't make any fucking sense. And they also said he was in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. It's again,
1: it's just suddenly this like, (laughs) this. how do we get out of this fucked up movie we made? You know, like... And now you get a bunch of money. and And again, this like unintentional bit of comedy for me was when it's like, well, the money was was, it was there were there were two chunks of money. one and it was supposed to be split equally but be, between you and Barbara, your sister. And then it's like, you know, her and her husband look at each other and realize, like, well, and you just fucking killed her. And she's like, and well, what if she's not around? I'm like, well, then you get it all, and they like kind of look at each other, like eyes
0: light up. It's yeah. like, yeah,
1: we just doubled our money because fucking
0: because yeah. George
1: Hilton just like murdered her. Yeah. Bar-
0: Barbara had this like totally cockeyed scheme involving a cult to get the inheritance when she could have approached it in a much more straightforward manner. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is what it's Richard true. does when he shows up at Barbara's apartment, uh, and this uh, this scene I love because it's flashing green lights on and off off, like a uh, future Fassbender. I always, th- whenever I see that sort of like on and off flashy lighting, I think of Fassbender. But a lot of very people good Very Godardian as yeah, well. Yeah, it's very know, European. It's like
2: yeah. And kind of felt like Vertigo too. Yeah,
0: it is the, it is the green vertigo color that's being like pumped into Barbara's apartment and there is this incredible rack focus to the beads in her apartment as the camera dollies as she's like getting undressed in the bathroom uh before Richard murders her (laughs) Uh (laughs) <laughs> and it, but it has that voyeuristic quality because all of a sudden right we're like behind these beaded curtains and it's flashing green on and off i mean it's fucking unbelievable like the style
2: yeah it was as if the camera was massaging all of those beads or even like running a hand th- through it you know uh, very gently it's like it's a, such a, a graceful stroke
0: of the beads and then Richard very bluntly uh, shoots her uh, <laughs> as he finds out she's, uh, you know, behind this this cult. Yeah.
1: Doesn't attempt to call the police, just plugs her. No. Yeah, <laughs> there's,
0: a, yeah there's a there's a very curious absence of police in this film. And in fact, while well, we're about to get to the point where the police are revealed in this film, which is again where reality is like breaking because Jane is uh, hospitalized because... Uh, of everything. Because, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because of everything that's happened to her. And she's she's hospitalized, <laughs> and she, like, wakes up in this hospital bed, uh, and <laughs> all of the sudden, a cop bursts in, and it's the high priest of the satanic cult. Yeah, and they're all dressed up like bobbies. <laughs> yeah, they're all dressed up like bobbies. And it's like the cult are the cops, and that's where she then has... Well, we experience it first as reality, which is she goes home from the hospital with Richard and there the high priest is waiting and murders Richard. The elevator's broken and Richard has to go up and,
1: and, you know, someone left the door open. Honey, you wait right here. I'm going to go get the elevator. And he he goes up the stairs and then, yeah, the cult leader, Bob Fosse, pops out and kills the husband, (laughs) you know. Oh, my God. And that's that's where we then get the break.
2: It was all a hallucination. It was all a dream. Or was it? That reveal of all of the satanic like cult members being these, you know, different functioning members of society felt like a an inverse Rosemary's Baby too, in a way, where instead in Rosemary's Baby we're introduced to all of these people who are then you know, shockingly revealed in the middle to be a part right. of this crazed satanic sex cult. And here we only know them from the cult. So then we see that they are, you know, different members of society and have like functioning jobs and lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all cops. <laughs> they're, they're all yeah. bobbies. <laughs> but yeah, then she wakes up again.
0: Yes. She and that wakes was a dream, again.
1: you know? So So we get it again, and then, okay, all right. It was all a dream, and they go back to the apartment. Richard's there, and he takes her back to the apartment. And then, just before they are to take the elevator, Richard points out that, oh, someone left the door open. I got to go upstairs and and fix it. Yeah, and it's like, this was like, (laughs) I was thinking of, like, Final Destination, you know? Because it's like a Final Destination moment where she even, like, says, like, this has happened before. I've seen this before. Like, Richard, no, watch out, you know? Yep. Her hallucination Deja wasn't vu. a hallucination. It was, yes, it was a precognitive dreamscape.
0: And one of the really funny things I discovered uh, researching this film is that for the Italian release, according to Martino, the, the, the dream was cut out because it had tested very poorly. And so they cut out the dream. And he was, like, you know, beside himself recounting this. And he said in the international release it was untouched, but specifically in Italy, that dream is gone. So you get, you're just watching this film, and all of a sudden she goes, I remember this, but the (laughs) scene isn't in the movie. And he was just, like, shaking his head about it, being like, what a disaster, you know? Uh, Because the whole rest of the film is, like, referring to the fact that, like, Through all this trauma and through her visions, she's now like, yeah, like a precog, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what the fuck, dude? Yeah, so it, it repeats, and, and then it ends in this wonderful rooftop uh, chase on top of this huge, you know, old apartment complex. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, fucking massive. And
1: and again, Richard goes in, like, full killing machine mode, yeah. and he is, like, the Terminator just chasing the cult leader across the roofs. It's, it's like, and it's and what, what I, I thought was funny about it, because, again, it's, like, the cult leader isn't chasing them around. You know, they're not trying to get away from it. It's like Richard's chasing him down, like I'm gonna fucking kill your ass. Yeah. He's had enough of everybody, and he's just gonna kill anything and
0: everybody, anything and anyone <laughs> who's coming into contact with his wife. You know. Yep, and uh, like all good genre films, this one ends with a dummy being thrown off of a building. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yep and and in uh it, I guess you know it, it is a, an ambivalent but happy ish question mark ending because ultimately yeah like the, as the police mentioned earlier, every member of the cult has been arrested or is dead, uh, and always they was killed by Richard. Or <laughs> Was killed by Richard. Yes, Richard killed clearly the two toughest guys in the whole gang. You know, but but like then there's this weird bit of of like overdubbed dialogue, right? Where uh, she's basically like, "I'm scared of not being myself anymore. Help me." and then the credits roll on on that and she fo- that line
2: is followed also after her just saying like i know you killed barbara i've known all along um yeah, what and does i'm that now mean? scared of myself yeah it's crazy cuz it's one of those really funny things too that's i love seeing films shot on film is like when a, it cuts and suddenly the image is like radically degraded because there was an optical effect yeah. that was placed on top of it so you know like you're you're seeing the shot and you're like okay it's either a fade or the credits are going to start right now yep. like i think we're at the end of this movie and then you don't even see her face as this overdub narration or you know she's like su- seemingly saying it to him just like spits that out like i know you killed her and i'm scared you got to help me and then he just looks at her confused and then we're confused and then it's a freeze frame in the credits roll <laughs> And it seems like one of those decisions that would have been made, like, all right, let's throw on, like, an extra line of dialogue because it's not testing well with audiences. They seem a bit confused. We should make this clearer for them. But if anything, that bit of audio makes the film radically more confusing than I, like, thought it, it might end up at.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's puzzling, uh, to say the least. And and I think <laughs> it, it, again, speaks to, like, what often happens in a lot of Giallo films where, you know, so much of the effort and the attention uh, to whatever detail you you want to you know focus on is just put in in the investigation in the journey and and yes and you know if you think about Blow Up again as as you know maybe a source of inspiration for them you know part of what's so haunting about that kind of film and and certainly that film is the the ambiguity of the ending, you know? It's this idea that, right, that there is no finality, there is no resolution, there is no, like, and we got them, you know? There, there is none of that. They they kind of, like, build these films that are supposed to just spiral into, like, nothingness, but then, you know, since they're more genre-oriented, they gotta be like, now we gotta end this fucking thing, so how do we do it? You know, aside from the idea that they, they just somehow threw Richard's like, murders uh, inherited 600,000 pounds total or whatever. Yeah. The, there is no clear, definitive sense of, you know, everything is going to be okay. Um, but there is also this tacked on, like, and they killed all the cult people, so I guess we're done here.
0: You yeah, know? I love to, you know, for a film that's so elusive, all of the sudden you just get, like, uh, that one scene where uh, the cops are just like, "Oh yeah, they're all dead." Uh, Barbara <laughs> was the diabolical mind behind the sect. Uh, she exploited their their rights for her own criminal purposes, and like, there are no questions followed up or asked about <laughs> yeah. this. It's just like they lay out all this stuff that like, eh, we're done here. Yep. Yep, wrap it up. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. Well, shit. You know, <laughs> so I certainly didn't see any of that stuff coming during uh, a lizard in a woman's skin. There was a point where Kyle said uh, her outfits are, are on point. And I was thinking about that in retrospect going like, I should have known she was like, the murderer like the black widow because of the way she's dressing throughout you know it's almost obvious when you think about it Gialla films really
2: are very like fashion forward you know and i even read about um all the colors of the dark that martino they got all of the costumes for free because they just had to credit the different fashion brands in the end credits. so that was like they got it you
0: know Gratis. I read that uh, this is something I, I didn't know, and maybe, Andy, you can attest to this, but uh, there was an enterprising producer who, who struck a deal with J&B, the whiskey, and so in almost every Giallo film, there's J&B. And it was like specifically like one guy that had like got it pumped into all these films. <laughs> like, I, it's worth pointing out these the Italian film industry was not and is not Hollywood. They often had to go to additional sources for funding. That's why a lot of Giallo films are co productions because they're genre films, so they're able to be. Enjoyed by American or European audiences outside of Italy, but right, it's about just getting enough money to make the goddamn movies, and if that means a co-production, if that means a J and B sponsorship, a German if, crew, <laughs> yeah, if whatever, yeah,
1: it's 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 the visual flair. It's it's like very clearly having at times very like mundane locations, but their ability to. To frame them, their ability to, to capture these spaces, too, that, that make them seem so much larger or more elaborate or more lavish than they even are. Uh, and and I, I, I think that for me, again, with a lot of Jalo films, what I notice is the world that they're capturing getting with their cameras and their threadbare production values or whatever seems to be filled with, with so much extra presence, you know, a sinister presence. Like, in all the colors of the dark, just the way he films that stupid fucking shitty elevator in his, like, extreme low angles or extreme high angles of how he's just shooting... This this shitty elevator in a shitty apartment building, it, it's so much more charged
0: somehow. One of the connections I made that I want to run by you guys is uh, to Doris Wishman. You know, if you want to untangle another yeah. thread that kind of influence, maybe not even literally influenced these films, but you can see the connection between a female subjectivity and and B the violence and eroticism right like i was thinking of bad girls go to hell watching both of these films right me these too these women are waking up in bed after having these horrible you know sexually violent nightmares i was like god damn we've we've talked about this on the podcast before you know absolutely man
2: yeah it's definitely there and it's funny, thing, you know, I think, Andy, you've recommended a Giallo film on the podcast before during the throwback, but, you know, as we're thinking about the, the character of Giallo and the character of Italian cinema, what, what are some of your favorite Bloody Valentines? What, what, what are, like, your canonical giallo title oh
1: man i mean i feel again i think in this episode i've already mentioned like a, a few yeah. of them and, <laughs> and and you're pointing out one that i did uh recommend before which is uh the possessed highly highly recommend that one but but i would say probably my all-time favorite uh one that i've gone to the most is is one of the canonical ones which is uh dario argento's deep red i i think that's that's just such a brilliant film, and it's it's so fun. And even in doing the podcast tonight, it's like it's made me just want to go watch it again. Uh, I think it yeah, has pop
2: it on. Yeah. yeah, it has one
1: of the best scores. <laughs> yeah, of of the Jalo films, you know, it's got that that just just absolutely bumping goblin prog rock score. But yeah, I love uh, Deep Red so much. I think it's a, a perfect fucking Jalo.
2: Yeah, it's a banger.
0: Well, it was Andy's topic this week, and uh, next week it's Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time?
2: Well, I'm really excited for the week ahead because Noir City is back, baby. Noir City is coming to Seattle. Eddie Moller's shuffling up a bunch of prints. and. I'm stoked. I it's been a long time since uh, uh, I've been able to to attend a Noir City festival. He's
1: just gonna be there with his really
2: short, very wide printed ties. You know, I love it too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it was one of my you know a favorite Chicago rituals. So I'm excited that I get to participate again. But so I'll be shuffling myself, you know, up to the city to go see some Noir City. So I thought, you know what? Why don't we lean a little? little harder in into that why don't we uh stick with the genre and i want you guys to present me with noir country get me out of the city present me with noir films that whether they be a western noir or just a noir that's generally not in uh an urban area Bring me some of that, because that stuff's really fun,
0: too. No problem. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, at Gauntlet Movies, or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. All of which shows that we are dealing exclusively with a liberating dream. A dream. Of course, at the time. I had believed that I was interpreting a dream. Neither Carol nor I could have thought it a tragic reality. Carol is still convinced it was a dream. Yes, it's possible. The images of what happened the other night are stored in her memory. Unreal elements supplied by the fantasies of the unconscious generally occur in dreams as symbols. Yes, like the green fields and the bird with enormous wings. Exactly. Take her love scenes with Julia Dura, which represent the love-hate relation. And very probably those two hippies. Listen. What about the ones on the balcony? The two hippies. They were you as well.